Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the OrthoBullets podcast. In today's episode, we cover the topic of thoracic outlet syndrome found under the shoulder and elbow section at orthobullets.com. Let's begin with a quick summary. Thoracic outlet syndrome is a neurovascular disorder resulting from compression of the brachial plexus and or subclavian vessels in the interval between the neck and axilla. Diagnosis can be suspected clinically with specific provocative tests and supplemented with radiographs or vascular studies showing anatomic causes of compression. Treatment may be non-operative or include surgical decompression or a vascular procedure depending on the specific etiology. Now let's get into the episode. In terms of the epidemiology, remember that this occurs in 1-2% to of the population. Demographically, it demonstrates a female-to-male ratio of 3 to 1, and it tends to occur in patients with thin, long necks and drooping shoulders. Age of onset is typically between 20 and 60 years of age. In terms of the etiology, the neurogenic type is the most common and occurs in 95% of cases. The vascular type may be venous, which occurs in 4% of cases, or arterial, which occurs in less than 1% of cases. And vascular types are more common in athletic males compared to athletic females. In terms of the pathophysiology, most cases are thought to stem from anatomic predisposition with superimposed neck trauma, which may be acute or from chronic repetitive stress. Anatomically, this can be organized into soft tissue abnormalities, which occurs in 70% of cases, and osseous abnormalities, which makes up the other 30% of cases. Soft tissue abnormalities include scalene muscle abnormalities, such as hypertrophy of the anterior scalene, passage of the brachial plexus through the anterior scalene muscle, rather than posterior within the interscalene triangle, variable origin and insertion, such as anterior insertion of the middle scalene muscle on the first rib, a scalene minimus, which is an accessory muscle found in 30-50% to 50% of patients with thoracic outlet syndrome, and it originates from cervical transverse processes and inserts onto the first rib between the subclavian artery and the T1 root, an anomalous ligament or band, which may include a fibromuscular band, which increases the stiffness and decreases compliance of the thoracic outlet, a costoclavicular ligament may have an abnormal insertion which is implicated in Paget-Schroeder syndrome. There may be soft tissue tumors, such as a Pankos tumor, which is a tumor of the pulmonary apex. This occurs in 1-3% to of lung cancer cases, and it generally lacks typical symptoms of lung cancer, such as cough, hemoptysis, and dyspnea. Other soft tissue tumors include neuroblastomas and schwannomas of the brachial plexus. Other soft tissue abnormalities include abnormal pectoralis minor. Osseous abnormalities may include a cervical rib, which occurs in less than 1% of the population. It typically arises from the seventh cervical vertebra. There are four types. Type 1 is a complete rib that articulates with the first rib or manubrium. Type 2 is an incomplete rib with the free distal bulbous tip. Type 3 is an incomplete rib with distal attachment via fibrous band. And type 4 is a short bar of bone only millimeters in length extending beyond the C7 transverse process. There may also be a prominent C7 transverse process, an abnormal clavicle or first rib, such as from an acute fracture displacement, hypertrophic fracture callus formation, or fracture malunion. There may be an acromioclavicular or sternoclavicular joint injury or dislocation, or there may be osseous tumors, such as bone metastases to the first rib, such as from breast, prostate, or kidney cancer, as well as an osteoidosteoma. Other causes include chronic overuse. This may be seen in repetitive shoulder use, especially in frequent lifting above the level of the shoulder and with extreme arm positions, including hyperabduction. Specific athletes at risk include weightlifters, rowers, and swimmers. Other etiologies include vascular causes. 
Specifically, repetitive compression over time can result in vessel damage, which may lead to aneurysm formation, thrombosis, embolic events, and limb-threatening ischemia. Conditions that are associated include Paget-Schroeder syndrome. This is a type of venous thoracic outlet syndrome seen in well-developed young athletes. It results in intermittent obstruction of the subclavian vein in the costoclavicular space by an abnormal costoclavicular ligament or by anterior scalene muscle hypertrophy, and it ultimately results in upper extremity deep vein thrombosis. Now let's review some anatomy. The thoracic outlet is made up of three distinct spaces. The proximal space is referred to as the interscalene triangle. Its anterior border is the anterior scalene muscle. The posterior border is the middle scalene muscle, and the inferior border is the first rib. Its contents include the brachial plexus trunks and the subclavian artery. Remember that the subclavian vein does not pass through the interscalene triangle as it runs beneath the anterior scalene muscle prior to entering the costoclavicular space. The second space is the costoclavicular space. It is separated from the interscalene triangle by the first rib. Its anterior border is the clavicle and subclavius muscle. The posterior border is the first rib and scalene muscles. The medial border is the costoclavicular ligament, and the lateral border is the upper scapular border. Its contents include the brachial plexus divisions and the subclavian artery and vein. The third and most distal space is the retropectoralis minor space. This is also known as the thoracocoracopectoral space or subcoracoid space. Its superior border is the coracoid. The anterior border is the pectoralis minor muscle, and the posterior border is made up of ribs two through four. Its contents include the brachial plexus cords and the axillary artery and vein. Moving on to the presentation. A patient's presentation may be very variable. It may range from mild pain to sensory changes to severe vascular compromise, and it can be unilateral or bilateral. The neurogenic type will typically present with pain over the neck, trapezius, chest, shoulder, and or arm. Remember that 92% of patients will endorse trapezius pain. There may also be upper extremity weakness, numbness, and paresthesias. However, the distribution differs from other compression syndromes. It will demonstrate a non-radicular nature. Remember that cervical nerve root compression presents with radicular pain. It will also demonstrate a wide anatomic distribution due to the plexus involvement. Remember that isolated peripheral nerve compressions such as cubital tunnel syndrome and carpal tunnel syndrome present with a clear dermatomal distribution. However, thoracic outlet syndrome will involve the lower plexus, such as C8 through T1, or a combined C5 through T1 involvement in 90% of patients. There will also be upper extremity paresthesias, which occur in up to 98% of patients. Some patients will endorse upper extremity heaviness, particularly with overhead activities, and symptoms can be activity-related and or occur at night. However, the nighttime symptoms are thought to result from decreased pressure on the brachial plexus with return of sensation manifesting as pain. The venous type may demonstrate episodic cyanotic discoloration and swelling of the limb with distended veins. There may be diffuse deep pain in the arm and the forearm and upper extremity heaviness, which worsens with activity. The arterial type may demonstrate unilateral Raynaud type symptoms, which is episodic coolness and pallor of the limb, followed by cyanosis and ultimately erythema. There may be worsening in cold temperatures, pain and numbness, and symptoms tend to predominantly involve the hand and other distal circulation. On exam, one should note specific postures which may increase loading on the brachial plexus. This may include rounded shoulders, increased thoracic kyphosis, and downward rotation or depression of the scapula. One should also inspect the skin and note any cyanosis, congestion, or pallor, as well as distal ulcerations and signs of microembolic events which are very rare.
one should also make note of the hair distribution and nail changes. Also note any muscle atrophy. A Gilead Sumner hand is a characteristic finding of neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome, and it refers to atrophy of the abductor pollicis brevis, hypothenar muscles, and interossei. One may also perform provocative tests, although there is a high rate of false positives. The first one is a supraclavicular pressure test. This evaluates for compression at the interscaling triangle. The specific technique involves having the patient be seated with their arm resting at the side. Then apply pressure to the upper trapezius and anterior scalene muscle, squeezing for 30 seconds. A test is positive if there is reproduction of pain or paresthesias. One may perform the Atzin test, which evaluates for compression at the interscaling triangle as well. The specific technique involves having the patient seated with shoulders slightly abducted and externally rotated, the elbow extended, and the forearm supinated. The examiner then palpates the radial pulse. The patient then maximally extends and laterally rotates the neck towards the side being tested. Then they inhale and hold their breath. The test is positive if there is a reduction in amplitude or loss of the radial pulse. However, remember that 51% of the normal population has diminished pulse with this maneuver. The test is also positive if there is reproduction of pain or paresthesias. Next is the costoclavicular maneuver. This evaluates for compression at the costoclavicular space. The specific technique involves having the patient seated with their arm at the side, elbow extended, and forearm supinated. The examiner palpates the radial pulse. Then, the patient retracts and depresses the bilateral shoulders, protruding the chest anteriorly and superiorly, as if performing an at-attention stance. The examiner then extends the shoulder about 30 degrees for one minute. The test is positive if there is reduction in amplitude or loss of the radial pulse, or if there is reproduction of pain or paresthesias. Another test is the right test. This evaluates for compression at the retropectoralis minor space. The specific technique involves having the patient seated with their arm at the side, elbow extended, and forearm supinated. The examiner palpates the radial pulse. The patient then laterally rotates the neck away from the side being tested. The examiner then externally rotates and maximally abducts the shoulder, holding the arm above the level of the head for one minute. The test is positive if there is a reduction in amplitude or loss of the radial pulse. However, remember that 7% of the normal population has diminished or lost radial pulse with this maneuver. The test is also positive if there is reproduction of pain or paresthesias. Another test is the Roost test or elevated arm stress test. This evaluates the entire thoracic outlet. The specific technique involves having the patient in the seated position, then they abduct the bilateral shoulders to 90 degrees with the elbow flexed to 90 degrees. The patient then opens and closes their hands for three minutes. The test is positive if there is a reproduction of pain or paresthesias. This will often prevent the patient from completing the test for the full three minutes, and a normal person may have discomfort with this maneuver, but are able to complete it. The test is also positive if there is resolution of pain or paresthesias with dropping of the arms. The last test is the Syriax release test. This evaluates the result of unloading the brachial plexus. The specific technique involves having the examiner stand behind the patient and grasp the bilateral forearms with the elbows in flexion and forearms in pronation. The examiner then leans against the patient's trunk to passively elevate the shoulder girdle for three minutes. The test is positive if there is reproduction of pain or paresthesias. In terms of further evaluation, recommended radiography includes chest radiography and cervical spine radiographs. Specific findings may include cervical ribs, prominent C7 transverse processes, low-lying shoulder girdles, and a pancose tumor. A CT is indicated to identify osseous space-occupying lesions and to evaluate malunited fractures of the ribs or clavicle. 
an MRI is indicated to evaluate for soft tissue anatomic anomalies. Nerve conduction studies, such as EMG and NCV, were historically thought to be equivocal and unhelpful. Studies were often normal unless significant permanent nerve damage was already established. However, recently it was discovered that nerve fibers from C8 and T1 may demonstrate early changes in neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome. This may be demonstrated with abnormal nerve conduction velocities in the medial antibrachial cutaneous nerve and median motor nerve to the abductor pollicis brevis. Vascular studies include Doppler ultrasound. This is helpful for evaluating subclavian vein for obstruction or thrombosis. It demonstrates 92% specificity and 95% sensitivity for diagnosis of venous thoracic outlet syndrome. Another vascular study is angiography, such as CT or MRI angiography. Arteriography specifically is indicated in cases of embolic disease or suspected arterial aneurysm. Venography is indicated in the workup of suspected subclavian or axillary venous thrombosis. In terms of treatment, non-operative options include activity modification, pain control, physical therapy, and other modalities. This is indicated as first line of treatment. Specific techniques can include activity modification to avoid provocative activities, such as limiting repetitive overhead motion and changing employment if necessary. Other techniques include pain control, such as with NSAIDs and muscle relaxants, physical therapy, such as core and back strengthening, shoulder girdle strengthening, and improving posture and relaxation techniques, and other modalities include transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation. Outcomes of these approaches are less successful in obese patients, patients on workers' compensation, and patients with double-crush neurologic pathology involving the carpal or cubital tunnels. Another non-operative option is anterior scalene blocks. This is indicated in neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome related to scalene muscle contracture. The specific technique involves ultrasound-guided lidocaine or botulinum toxin injections. In terms of the outcomes, remember that successful block correlates with 14% higher rate of good surgical outcomes. Operative options include thoracic outlet decompression. This is indicated for symptoms that have failed conservative treatment for six months, or progressive muscle atrophy and or worsening of neurologic deficits. The specific technique may involve a combination of procedures depending on the underlying etiology. These potential procedures include a first rib resection, anterior and middle scalenectomy, and neurolysis, which is the most common procedure and demonstrates good outcomes in 95% of cases, an isolated scalenectomy, which is indicated for upper plexus symptoms, absence of abnormal bony architecture, excessively muscular or obese patients, and recurrent thoracic outlet syndrome following prior first rib resection. An isolated pectoralis minor tenotomy, which is indicated for neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome with symptoms reproducible to the retropectoralis minor space, as well as a cervical rib resection, release of fibromuscular bands, costoclavicular ligament resection, and ORIF of clavicle malunion. Vascular interventions are indicated for embolic events, stenosis with persistent pain and vascular insufficiency, subclavian aneurysms, and thrombosis with critical ischemia. Specific techniques include IV heparin, plus or minus embolectomy, plus or minus leukothrombectomy, plus or minus TPA, and systemic anticoagulation. This is indicated for acute embolic events, small vessel embolism, for which treatment should include TPA and systemic anticoagulation, and large or proximal vessel embolism, for which treatment should include embolectomy and systemic anticoagulation. Another technique is endovascular stent placement, this is indicated for mild stenotic disease. Other techniques include vascular resection, plus or minus primary repair, plus or minus saphenous vein graft, plus or minus arterial autograft, and plus or minus synthetic graft. 
This is indicated for subclavian aneurysm and severe stenosis or thrombosis with critical ischemia. And lastly, vascular bypass is indicated for chronic emboli with critical ischemia. Now let's discuss the thoracic outlet decompression techniques in more detail. One approach is the transaxillary approach. This is the most commonly used approach. Its pros include that it demonstrates superior exposure for the first rib resection, it allows resection of cervical ribs, costoclavicular ligament, fibromuscular bands, and scalene muscles, it allows access to the lower plexus for neurolysis, it leaves a more cosmetic scar, and there's no retraction of neurovascular structures necessary for first rib removal. Its biggest con is that it risks injury to the brachial plexus. The supraclavicular approach has pros of superior exposure of the upper plexus, specifically the upper and middle trunks, the scalene muscles, and the neck of the first rib and vascular structures. It is the best approach for isolated scalenectomy and arterial reconstruction, and it allows resection of the first rib but requires significant retraction. Its cons are that it demonstrates inferior visualization for the first rib resection, and it requires retraction of the brachial plexus and vascular structures for the complete first rib exposure. For the posterior approach, its pros are that it is favored for recurrent thoracic outlet syndrome and in cases of prior neck surgery, and it may allow better exposure of proximal elements of the brachial plexus. Its cons are that it requires extensive muscle dissection that can lead to postoperative shoulder dysfunction, and it risks injury to the long thoracic, dorsal scapular, and accessory nerves. And in terms of the decompression technique for first rib resection, anterior and middle scalenectomy, and neurolysis, these are usually performed with combined approaches. The transaxillary approach is used to access the first rib and lower plexus, and the supraclavicular approach is used to access the anterior and middle scalene muscles and the upper plexus. Specific complications include a pneumothorax, which is one of the most common complications of first rib resection. And lastly, complications related to these procedures, as previously stated, are pneumothorax, which is one of the most common complications of first rib resection. Now that we've discussed the major points relating to thoracic outlet syndrome, let's walk through a question to apply what we've learned and get a sense of how the topic might be tested. For this question, consider the following clinical scenario. A 35-year-old businessman complains of tingling and numbness in his fingers of both hands, mostly in the ring and small fingers, and it's made worse with overhead activity. Neurologic exam and electromyography and nerve conduction studies are normal. His x-ray demonstrates a cervical rib. What is the most likely diagnosis? And the answer choices are Choice 1. C5-C6 cervical disc herniation Choice 2. C6-C7 cervical disc herniation Choice 3. Bilateral cubital tunnel syndrome Choice 4. Bilateral radial tunnel syndrome Or Choice 5. Thoracic outlet syndrome The best answer to this question is Choice 5. Thoracic outlet syndrome the thoracic outlet space is created by the clavicle, first rib, subclavius muscle, costoclavicular ligament, and anterior scalene muscle. It most often affects subclavian artery, vein, and the lower trunk of the brachial plexus. The neurological exam may reveal sensory changes in the ring and little finger and intrinsic weakness. Radiographs in this question demonstrate cervical ribs, but could also show a pancose tumor or even be normal. The publication by Lafert reviewed thoracic outlet syndrome and cautioned that surgery should be reserved for intolerable symptoms as surgical complications can be significant. The publication by Thompson provides a concise review stating that thoracic outlet syndrome represents a group of heterogeneous and potentially disabling upper extremity disorders that are caused by extrinsic compression of neurovascular structures between the first rib and clavicle. 
There are three distinct types of thoracic outlet syndrome, which are classified according to the principal anatomic structures involved and the clinical syndromes that result. These include neurogenic, venous, and arterial thoracic outlet syndrome. That's all for this review about thoracic outlet syndrome. We hope that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session from OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. As a reminder, you can follow along with these podcast episodes by reviewing the topics directly on orthobullets.com. You can listen to these episodes on the OrthoBullets website or phone app while reading through the topic. If the OrthoBullets podcast has been valuable to you, we'd be thrilled if you considered leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.